In all areas, the UK continues to backtrack. The European Union argues that, that we, be, we should be subject to rules of the club that we have left. The precondition is the level playing field. Uh, we can deliver a real Brexit that achieves our objectives. But if there is not a deal, we still need the Irish Protocol or the Northern Irish Protocol fully implemented. I'm going to miss being the pantomime villain. Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic, RTE's podcast on Brexit. I'm Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe editor in Brussels. And I'm Colm O'Mungoyne, RTE's deputy foreign editor in Dublin. Each week, Brexit Republic assesses all the latest Brexit developments in Brussels, London and Dublin. This week, we hear some fascinating insights from a key diplomat who was at the heart of the long and tortuous tussle between the United Kingdom and the European Union over Ireland and the Irish border. Rory Montgomery, who was Ireland's ambassador to the EU when the Brexit referendum was just a twinkle in David Cameron's eye, talks us through the tumultuous negotiations that led first to Theresa May's doomed withdrawal agreement and later the revised Northern Ireland Protocol. And what it was like to be in the room during key confrontations between Britain and Ireland over how to resolve the border issue. And we'll be talking to Noel O'Connell, head of the European Movement Ireland, on this week's Red Sea poll whether the dial is shifting on a Brexit-induced United Ireland. But first, I suppose we better, Tony, pay tribute to our colleague Sean Whelan, who has not departed this earth, but rather departed for the nations of the United Kingdom who are holding elections over the coming month. Sean is travelling to Wales and next week to Scotland, so we're going to catch up with him when he gets back from his travels there and is putting together some pieces for RT News, online television, radio and of course this podcast as well. But you mentioned Rory Montgomery there, Tony. Tell us about the chat you had with him. Yes, yeah, so Rory Montgomery was Irish ambassador to the EU uh, back in 2013 when David Cameron made that famous Bloomberg speech where he promised uh, an in-out referendum on British membership of the European Union uh, if he was able to renegotiate the terms of of that membership. Uh, And he was a central figure in Brussels at that time in his dealings with the the British side who were obviously coming to terms with this possibility of Britain leaving the EU. Um, But then when he went back to Dublin, he was a central and very important diplomat in the room, if you like, during the long period of the Brexit withdrawal agreement, then the revised withdrawal agreement uh, with Boris Johnson. And he has some really interesting things to say about that whole period, about how Ireland managed to outsource its unique problem of Brexit and whether or not that perhaps backfired in a sense, if that's not too strong a word, in terms of how we are dealing with the outcome of that today, the Northern Ireland Protocol, and how difficult that is, not for Irish nationalists, but for unionists in Northern Ireland who have had to swallow the idea of an Irish sea border. So he doesn't really need that much of an introduction, even though I've just introduced him. But uh, let's hear now from the man himself, Rory Montgomery. Rory Montgomery, delighted to have you on Brexit Republic. Um, Can you just first of all remind us what part you played in the negotiations going back to, I think, 2016 or even perhaps earlier when the Brexit vote first reared its head and the Irish question was also on the horizon for some people? Yes, absolutely. Well, funnily enough, um, I was actually the Irish permanent representative to the EU in January 2013 uh, and uh, chairing the Ambassadors Committee, indeed, when the British ambassador told us about the speech David Cameron was going to make at Bloomberg, uh, making a commitment to hold a referendum. Um, And then about a year and a half later, I came back to Dublin. I was uh, the senior EU person in the Taoiseach's department for a couple of years with Enda Kenny. And uh, recognising that a referendum might happen, we actually did our first sort of paper looking at possible consequences for Ireland um, of a British vote to leave in late 2014. And then sort of 2015, 2016, I was engaged um, in a negotiation which David Cameron had looked for, looking for certain changes to the UK relationship with the EU, which he could then use as a basis for a referendum campaign. And that was a bit of a disaster. Um, 
So, as I say, I was in Taoiseach um, just for the period immediately after the vote. Um, and then I moved back to the Department of Foreign Affairs. There was a reorganisation. Um, and I worked with um, well, successive ministers of foreign affairs, but in particular, Simon Coveney, um, until I retired in the summer of 2019. So even back as far as 2014, Ireland had identified the risks that a leave vote might bring to bear on the island of Ireland? Yes, absolutely. I mean, we we looked at a, a wide range of issues, um, you know, many of them being economic, of course, but we were aware from the very beginning um, of the possible risks uh, to Northern Ireland, um, to the Good Friday Agreement, and also, of course, to the relationship between Ireland and Britain. I mean, were, were, was the Good Friday Agreement and the trading risk between Ireland and the UK, one of our big markets, were they of equal weight, do you think, in, in the government's mind at that time? Well, I think it's really not possible to say because... You know, it's still, I mean, most people didn't think it was a very likely prospect. Um, And so largely, you know, it was a matter of analysis, but I don't think the government ever engaged in a really detailed uh, discussion of the matter until really quite close to the referendum itself. Um, When they did, quite a few ministers did travel over to Britain uh, to campaign in Irish communities. Um, And I think, and, and I think in a way, um, the, the Northern Ireland issue became really salient um, more immediately after the vote for two reasons. I mean, A, because it was what it was unique to us. Everybody else had concerns about trade to a greater or lesser extent. And B, because it was something we felt needed to be dealt with early uh, rather than being left till later on like the trade relationship. I mean, a lot has been written, Rory, in the interim about whether Britain really cared or knew enough or neglected the Irish question, given the extent to which it dominated the withdrawal negotiations. But from your vantage point back then, did David Cameron intuitively grasp the risk that a a leave vote might might have on the peace process and and on this whole question of infrastructure at the land border? Yeah. No, well, it, it didn't feature, it didn't feature largely um, one has to say, in his thinking, I mean, the, the campaign was overwhelmingly um, based, of, as you will remember, on the possible economic consequences for Britain. Um, in fairness, there were a number of uh, senior British figures um, who did um, see the danger. Tony Blair and, and John Major wrote a, a joint article. And even, in fact, I, not long ago, I saw again an article by William Hague, who was then the Foreign Secretary, um, in which he was quite prescient. Now, n- not in being... Um, not in being precise about the, the details of hard borders or otherwise, but just realising that you know, it could be quite convulsive as far as the overall set of relationships in the Good Friday Agreement was concerned. Of course, the vote happened. Uh, there was the big shock on the 23rd of June 2016, and then everybody had to run around and see where the chips were landing to see what should happen next. And then I think we had the leadership battle in the Conservative Party. Theresa May became Prime Minister. And I think Enda Kenny was one of the first foreign leaders to visit her in Downing Street, if I'm not mistaken. Did you attend possibly, that, yeah. that lunch? I think possibly, yeah. I think possibly the very first, actually. Um, yeah, I do remember I was at that. And um, no, I remember quite... What, what do you remember, remember quite, of, the, of the lunch? Well, I remember I remember quite clearly. It, it actually was a slightly awkward lunch because... Um, Theresa May had nothing like Cameron's kind of easy, easy charm. Even though his easy charm may have got him into some <laughs> trouble of late. Exactly. Um, but um, but no. So I remember it being quite a tense kind of well, not, not a tense, but a stiff kind of affair. Because Ed Kenny again, who had got on well with Cameron, uh, I think was expecting May to be more outgoing than, than she was. So what I remember mostly is not the substance of the conversation. As, as the atmosphere, um, which was, as I say, that they didn't really establish any kind of rapport um, between themselves. And as I recall, indeed, a lot of the talking had to be done by the officials, um, by myself and our ambassador to London um, uh, on, on, on the one hand, um, and then by Mark Sedwell, who was not then the Cabinet Secretary, uh, but had been her senior advisor in the Home Office. Um, so as I say, I think there was a general a general discussion you know, around the issues, but I don't remember it getting down to any kind of brass tacks. I mean, we had identified four principal issues 
Um, you know, obviously the the question of the peace process and the hard border, the common travel area, the impact on the Irish economy, and the fourth then was the overall impact on the EU as a whole. Um, so I think as I think you know, I can't remember um, for certain, but I imagine and Kenny went through those. But again, we didn't get that to detail. And of course, you did. Both sides did issue a statement afterwards, um, if I remember correctly, rejecting any notion that there be a return to the borders of the past and a commitment to the peace process. But again, did you get any sense that Theresa May intuitively grasped what was at stake for Ireland if Britain did leave the the single market and the customs union? I don't think she had articulated precisely at that point what Britain's no, intentions were, but that but that obviously became clear soon after. Yes, I don't think I don't. I mean, again, I I can't remember in detail, but I don't think I don't think she did. Um, to be to be honest, uh, and of course, I mean, the term "borders of the past" had a certain ambiguity um, within it, and it was broad enough to cover a, a multitude, if you like. Now that that autumn of 2016, I think, was very important because on the one hand, Theresa May did have to step up to the plate as a Eurosceptic Brexiteer leader of the Conservative Party and of, of the United Kingdom. And also Ireland had to essentially grasp the reality that this would not be a bilateral fix between Ireland and the UK. This was something that was going to be outsourced to the European Commission in the shape of uh, Michel Barnier. Well, that's right. I mean, we didn't, of course, know in the autumn exactly what the negotiating structures would be on the EU side because Barnier will be appointed. Um, uh, uh, you know, well, had been appointed, but he he also hadn't really got down into the detail, the detailed work. Um, and they were they were just setting up the sort of council working group and, and and so on, but that's you know neither here nor there. Um, yeah, you're right. I mean, I still remember the day of Theresa May's speech to her own conference. Um, funnily enough, it was it, it happened during the annual meeting of secretaries general from Irish government departments, um, including myself as the second secretary general in the Taoiseach's department, and the permanent secretaries in the in the British system. And one of the reasons we were having it on that day was that all the ministers, British ministers, were down. Brighton, and I still remember when the when the text of the speech came in, there was general amazement and even a degree of consternation, including among the British officials. I think they had no expectation uh, that it could be as firm as this. And I think the speech had been written pretty well entirely uh, by Nick Timothy, her her advisor. I don't think the officials had been much involved at all. Um, so, as I say, so, so, so that was on the British side. We, on the other hand, I mean, really, from a very early moment, um, you know, right after the vote, we had started. Uh, getting in touch with the other member states and the institutions, sitting out our concerns. I mean, there was a very important visit by Andrew Kenny to uh, Berlin on the 12th of July. Uh, Francois Hollande was with us in Dublin about a week later. Um, and in fact, the moment when we knew that our, 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 our lobbying was getting through was when we, we, we heard, or what precisely Charlie Flanagan heard in Ulaanbaatar, of all places, um, in Mongolia. Asia, Mongolia. In EU, Asia. Yeah, exactly. At an EU-Asia summit, the discussion about Brexit, Angela Merkel um, said that the Irish issue was one of the problems which had been thrown up uh, by the vote. Um, so as I say, we, we embarked, I mean, I worked out that between between um, July and sort of April 2017, when the European Council adopted its negotiating mandate, we had approximately 400 bilateral discussions um, between Taoiseach, Minister for Foreign Affairs, Minister for European Affairs, um, senior officials in Dublin, um, our ambassadors, you know, with 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 equivalents in other um, EU member states. So we were really working overtime to get the message across. And looking back, I mean, it's clear that the message was wholeheartedly embraced and adopted by not just the European Commission, but member states, uh, including people like Angela Merkel. I mean, do, do you have any idea why that degree of acceptance was there given what we know now how how difficult the Northern Ireland protocol was going to become over a two or three year period well I think they didn't first of all I think they didn't know and maybe nobody knew how difficult it it would become I mean that's the that's the first thing 
Uh, and secondly, the great majority of them didn't have any special knowledge of uh, Ireland, um, and they relied very much on us to, 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 to tell them about it. But I think there were two principal um, issues, um, or two principal reasons. The first was, you know, the instinctive um, desire to support a member state against the country which was leaving, um, and, you know, a desire for EU solidarity. The whole, you know, from the very beginning, when the European Council first met, even less than a week after the referendum, this message of solidarity and unity was already very strong. So I think supporting Ireland was a practical example of, of that. And I think the other reason was that, you know, there is within the European Union um, a sense that the Northern Ireland peace process you know, has been, to some extent at least, um, uh, you know, a, 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 an outcome of EU support, and that the EU has poured quite a lot of money into Northern Ireland. It's offered an example, as John Hume uh, would always say. So I think there was a sense that this was, if you like, a European triumph, um, which, uh, which shouldn't be jeopardised. I mean, do, do you get this or did you get the sense at the time when this support was crystallizing in Europe for Ireland and Ireland's analysis of the problem that the UK was becoming increasingly alarmed at what this was going to mean for Brexit? It was going to be a major constraint on the kind of Brexit that Theresa May and, and Nick Timothy were heading towards. Well, I think I think they only really became aware. I mean, they, we only started getting into the substance um, in the autumn of 2017, um, I mean, the British had published a paper uh, on possible approaches before that, um, but, you know, well over a year a- after the vote. Um, and, of course, the, the, the topics which dominated, as you will remember, Tony, the first months of the negotiation were Britain's financial obligations mm. to the EU um, and the question of citizens, you know, British citizens in Europe and European citizens in Britain. So the Irish issue, I think, you know, you know, they, they just did not realise, I think, um, you know, possibly understandably, um, h- how big an issue it was. Um, and they, they had other fish to fry as well. Yeah. And of course, there was that key um, working paper, if I recall, from November 2017, which posited for the first time this idea of some kind of alignment in Northern Ireland with the EU single market and customs union for Precisely, there yeah. to be a, a, an avoidance of, of the hard border. And that went down really badly in London. It's like they weren't expecting anything like that. Well, I, I think they I think they weren't, to be honest. I mean, I think there had been, and if anything, you know, I, I slightly, there are a couple of moments where looking back, I, I wonder if, um, and it wouldn't be for us, because as you said earlier, there was great pressure from the British to turn this into a bilateral uh, discussion. And I still remember a meeting between David Davis and um, Simon Coveney, where Davis talked about about this and also said, of course, we can get it all wrapped up, the whole thing wrapped up within a year or so. And I said, uh, well, I don't think so. And to which he said, well, who are you? And I explained to who I was. He said, oh, well, officials, <laughs> you're, you're like that. Um, but there was this pressure. So we were always, we were never going to tell the British. But I, I do wonder if the commission could have, you know, used back channels, um, you know, to at least to sensitise the British to what was coming, uh, both then mm. and then at the end of February when the, um, the first draft of the protocol actually appeared. But you're right. I mean, that, that you know, because we've been talking very much in generalities, really, um, up to the, you know, up to September, October. And it was really only then that we got into the drafting with the commission. And I think it was the, you know, the, the, the commission... It was, you know, the, the commission and in particular my talk, colleague John Callan and Dr. Tichik and then the rest of us, you know, it kind of almost by a process of elimination, I think, this idea of, of alignment emerged as the, the only way in which it was going to be possible uh, to avoid a, a hard border. And I think if, if I recall correctly, there was a really difficult meeting in Gothenburg in November of 2017 between Theresa May and Leo Varadkar at the time where... I think she was really pushing hard against this idea that the the UK would have to sign up to something like this in order to get on to the next phase of the negotiations. And yes. I think she may even have told Donald Tusk, the European Council president, that you know a, a country like Ireland couldn't stand in the way of you know Britain's or the, the sort of Brexit destiny. Yes, I think. I mean, I think it did come as a surprise to them, and it remained a surprise to them throughout. As I say, that there was the level of solidarity, uh, and also I think you see they, they they kind of assumed that because you know we had such a strong interest overall in the British-Irish relationship, 
and given the economic importance of uh, of what um you know of, of of the relationship that we would be you know that we would be perhaps a bit softer than we than we turned out to be um and it was difficult for us because the the dominance of the um of, of the northern ireland slash island of ireland border issue um was such that in a way it would have been more natural for us on many issues um, to take a more sympathetic um, approach to many of the other British concerns. But because we were investing in negotiating capital overwhelmingly in this other issue, um, and also because we realised that we wouldn't be such a big player on, on the other more general issues, and um, we, we didn't I think, come through as the British um, hoped that we, we would. So we, we had a long period then where the Commission presented its first draft of the withdrawal agreement with that idea of Northern Ireland staying in the customs union and single market, uh, even though it was written somewhat opaquely at the time. This was in February 2018, and then yes. that's when Theresa May came out and said no British Prime Minister would ever accept uh, a border down the Irish Sea. And then we had a long period of back and forth where then she came up with the idea of the UK-wide customs arrangement uh, as part of the backstop to avoid a customs border on the Irish Sea. Um, and then, of course, she ran into terrible trouble in the House of Commons. That got rejected, I think, three or four times, the, the famous backstop uh, and her own withdrawal agreement. And then fast-forwarding somewhat to the autumn of 2019, um, Boris Johnson came along and signed up to precisely that, a border on the Irish Sea. Yeah, I mean, ab- ab- absolutely. I mean, I have to confess that, um, you know, the, if, if you remember, it was the end of 2017 when the idea of no alignment appeared in this joint declaration or joint report by the Commission of the British Government. And I can remember looking at the draft and going home um, from a meeting in Teachings Department on a Sunday night, the, the day before um, May was meeting um, Juncker, and with a very senior colleague, and we were agreeing that we couldn't see any way in which this would fly with the unionists in particular. And even despite the changes which Charlie Foster got, that was that was how it was. But you're right. I mean, you know, again, we were. I personally was mystified by May's turn to the UK-wide customs um, arrangement because it just seemed to me inconceivable that her party would um, accept it. Um, and anyway, so and so it so it so it turned out. Um, so Boris, in a way, had you know, if he wanted a deal, he simply had to you know, go back to something uh, like uh, what had been on the table, you know, about eighteen months, nineteen months previously. Uh, but I suppose he had the kind of shamelessness um, or the political agility, whatever, however, whatever you want to call it, um, to 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 reverse position and to sign up. Um, and of course, I mean, the one the one difference was this sort of provision for democratic uh, consent. Um, you know, of which he made a lot um, once the uh, once the protocol had been negotiated. Now, you have written uh, a very thought-provoking article for Fortnite magazine uh, on where we're at with the protocol and the problems that everyone is now grappling with. And you talked in particular about that consent mechanism, and you, you're quite critical of it in, in a sense, saying that it's... It, it would have been better not to have it at all because, in a sense, it's a it's a superficial form of consent. Is that is that the right way of well, describing well, yeah, it? Yeah, I mean, a couple, a couple of points. I mean, first of all, this idea of some form of consent had been floating around for quite a while. And at one stage, there were even a couple of people in the British system who thought it might be a good idea to have a referendum in Northern Ireland uh, on the outcome of the talks, and I think that that was uh, I don't say it was seriously entertained, but uh, that one or two quite senior people in the system could even think that was a bit shocking. Um, but I think the, I think the problem was this: that you know what you, what the unionists understood by consent was effectively you know consent consent of the unionists or consent of both communities in line with the provisions of the of the, of the Strand 1 Institutions Good Friday Agreement. And that was never going to be acceptable to us or to the um, to the EU side. It would effectively have given the unions a veto over the whole arrangement. Um, so we ended up, as I say, and, and so and also it would have been, I think, pretty, it's already pretty odd that a sovereign government um, is outsourcing, as it were, um, some of the responsibility for um, approving 
um, or, or maintaining at least an international agreement to a, a sort of a, a regional assembly. But 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 there you are. No, but as I say, but the form of consent, which was then eventually uh, put in, um, first of all, it you know it didn't, as it couldn't have, give the unionists what they wanted, in that it allows ultimately for a simple majority um, in the assembly. To maintain the arrangements, you know, in a vote every every four years, um, normally, or every eight years in certain circumstances. Um, so first of all, so I say it didn't give the unionists what they wanted, um, as it couldn't have. Secondly, it um, it did. I mean, not in a legal sense breach uh, the Good Friday Agreement, but there's no doubt that you know within votes within the assembly are all or can all be on the basis of cross community consent and this was a, a deviation from that principle in a pretty brutal way um, and thirdly of course it means that probably every four years there would be uh, you know the need for the assembly to grapple with the, the protocol to decide whether to maintain it or not that injects a further sort of you know a bit of poison into the into the system into a system which can <laughs> which already has plenty of poison sloshing around within it so, as I say, I think in, in, in almost every way, I think it was a, a very bad idea. It didn't it didn't placate those it was meant to placate, um, and it caused other problems. I mean, to say that this is a, is a breach of the Good Friday Agreement is is quite a strong way of putting it, and that's obviously reflected in some of the unionist rhetoric about the protocol as it stands. Um, I mean, you say in your piece that unionist objections to the protocol on the basis in particular of the consent mechanism, which didn't allow them to block something um, whereby they probably would have had an opportunity to block something in a different situation regarding the Good Friday Agreement. Um, I mean, do, do you think that looking back, Ireland and the and the EU could have been more far-sighted in this kind of thing coming to pass. That, you know, whatever way you look at it, uh, yeah, it's not a border I mean, on the it, island of Ireland. It's a border on the Irish Sea, and unionists are just going to hit it. Yeah. No. I mean, I, I, I think. I mean, on the yeah. I mean, as I say, I don't think technically, um, it, it's a breach of the Good Friday Agreement, um, because it's because the you know the Good Friday Agreement provisions on voting apply strictly speaking to matters which are devolved. This isn't a devolved matter, um, and therefore, you know, they were entitled the British government to come up with another mechanism for measuring consent. Um, but as I say, in terms of the spirit of the agreement, uh, it was certainly pretty odd. Um, I also, you know, I don't believe, as I say, that the, um, you know, that the border and the IRC, quote unquote, um, breaches the Good Friday Agreement or changes the constitutional status of Northern Ireland in the United Kingdom. But it does undoubtedly um, accentuate or add to the ways in which Northern Ireland is different from the rest of the UK. It's already different in many respects. Um, so I suppose my basic point would be that I think unionist opposition to this is, in a sense, as you know, as understandable and as you know, as as reasonable from their point of view as nationalist opposition to a, a border on the on the island uh, would have would have been. I mean, the strange thing is that throughout the, the process, the big fear. Um, was the damage which the process would do um, to, to 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 nationalist confidence in the agreement and in the arrangements, and it's ended up, of course, um, backfiring um, and 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 ending up with the unions being in a bad situation. Now, a lot of people will say, "Well, that's you know their tough luck," and the DUP largely got themselves into this mess, which is true. Um, but at the same time, I don't think that's a an attitude which we in the Republic can can really afford to take. And there does seem to be a genuine, you know, I think people accept, I think most people in Northern Ireland or majority may accept that the protocol is here today, it has to be worked, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they like it. Yeah, so, I mean, in a sense there, is, is it a case that Brexit was always going to have this kind of binary outcome, bad for one, good for the other? Uh, or do you think the Irish government and the commission could have taken a softer line in retrospect on some of the principles guiding the whole trajectory of the protocol. Well, it's a, it's a very no, it's a very interesting question. Um, I mean, obviously, the the British and the Commission are working away at the moment, and uh, you know, I'm told the talks are going. Well, you'll know more about this than I I, I do, but I mean, I'm told the talks are progressing in a in a, in a professional kind of way, and it may be possible uh, to quote Boris Johnson to scrape some barnacles um, off the off off the boat, but. Um, 
no, I think I mean I think two points. I mean, first of all, yes. I mean, you know, if if the British were to leave the single market and the customs union, um, there was always going to have to be then a, a series of checks and controls somewhere. Um, I remember again at a meeting with Coveney uh, with Philip Hammond, who was then the Chancellor, saying he ge- genuinely did not see how you could square the circle, um, mm. and without causing you know huge problems. And that's true. I suppose my only my only regret is this. I mean, I think a lot of people forget that for the first number of months um, after the vote, um, there was a willingness on the Irish side to to look without prejudice at at ways of applying checks and controls um, on the island, which which wouldn't involve physical infrastructure and so on. And in a way, you know, when we talked about a hard border, some of that at least had to do with the right of travel, the common travel area. Some of it had to do with the absence of security installations and all of that. But in our discussions, and the revenue has some quite interesting ideas, but but the trouble was that we ran into a kind of a brick wall with the commission, um, not the Barney people, but, you know, the, the DJ Stanley people and so on, um, who said, no, the rules will have to apply in full. And I suppose when I look back at it, you know, if the commission had been a bit more open to exploring uh, ways in which... Um, you know, the, the very special circumstances of Northern Ireland could have been taken into account. I mean, the trade between Great Britain and Northern Ireland is not, you know, political in terms of the political context, like trade between a third country and, and the EU. And also, again, what are the risks uh, to the single market, really, of diversion through Northern Ireland? But as I say, I think, you know, I think the Commission was never going to, to take that point. And we obviously, having, you know, having brought the Commission and the other member states on board, you know, we weren't going to say um, in the middle of everything. Well, actually, this um, isn't such a great idea after all. Not that we, not that people thought it, thought of it like, like that. But I suppose if the, I mean, one of my points would be that if the British had been a bit cleverer early on and a bit more focused, um, maybe they could have contested um, some of the interpretation of what the Good Friday Agreement or what was most important about it. But they, they didn't, of course. And and one final point, I think. And this applies more generally to the uh, functioning of not just of the protocol, but of the agreement itself. Um, certainly in the Irish government, and I think almost everywhere, there was a huge focus on what would happen to exporters um, and not so much about what would happen to importers and imports. And I think the fact that you know, the Northern Ireland had been guaranteed unfettered access to the British market um, you know, was felt to sort of deal with most of the problems. Um, but in fact, of course, I think almost everybody, I mean, until pretty late, until pretty late on, uh, underestimated the impact on, 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 on imports and on supply chains into Northern Ireland. Now, you mentioned the talks that are ongoing at the moment, and you also mentioned in your fortnight article that perhaps the European Union should question exactly what is the risk of goods entering the single market from Great Britain via Northern Ireland? Is it an existential risk? And this is this is a point that I hear British officials saying over and over again. Are sausages from GB being sent to Sainsbury's and Derry yes. really, uh, you know, a, 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 an existential risk to the single market? What, what's your view? I think, I think these are, I mean, I think these are arguments which can legitimately be, be made, you know, on as I said, I, I don't think uh, trade between Great Britain and Northern Ireland is really, uh, you know, easily equated um, to trade elsewhere, you know, for political reasons, but also for, because of geography. Having said that, I think I also make clear in the article that I think you, you could only begin to have a really serious discussion about those issues if there were a sense that the British were, in fact, operating what they had signed up to in good faith um, and in one confidence. And I mean, after that, and if if after every effort um, to, uh, to to make things run more smoothly, and if there were you know a sense that yes, the British were were were, were fully living up to what they said they would do, but there were still there were still significant issues. I mean, then at that point, maybe you could have begun a discussion such as this. But at the moment, as I say, I think you know the, I think that's entirely you know uh, unrealistic. And as I say, I think it's another example of how the, the British approach overall has, you know, while it may have seemed sort of, you know, tactically smart to, to, to some people in their system, I think it's another example of how they've closed off, um, you know, possible possible um, avenues. Hmm. OK, well, I, mean, I think as, as, as we speak, there are ongoing technical talks, as you know, and there, there are more plans for outreach between 
Lord Frost and Maro Shevchevich on the EU side yes. with stakeholders in Northern Ireland. Um, and, and so it's it's to be hoped that pragmatism will prevail, although I'm, I'm told that the precautionary principle, which is kind of baked into EU law, especially around yeah. SPS, uh, food safety, animal, animal welfare and so on, is a bit of a difficult goalpost uh, to shift. But uh, in any event, we shall see. Um, I must say, Rory Montgomery, it's been a really fascinating discussion with you going back over a long and tortuous period of Brexit and the Irish question. Um, it's been a great pleasure to have you on Brexit and uh, uh, the Brexit Republic podcast. And we wish you all the best for the uh, the coming years. But thank you very much, Tony. Bye-bye, Dad. Okay, Tony, that was a fascinating half an hour with Rory Montgomery. You mentioned the protocol several times there. Bring us up to speed on developments there as they've happened since our last episode last week. Yeah, so last week we talked about the dinner in Brussels between David Frost and Maro Shevchevich uh, and the fact that the, the whole process was going to slide into this very long and detailed technical discussion between both sides as to how they might alleviate some of the harder aspects of the Northern Ireland Protocol, uh, perhaps as Boris Johnson described, sandpapering uh, the harder pieces, uh, knocking the barnacles off. But it is going to be a difficult issue. The UK government, as we talked about last week, had presented a work programme to the European Commission, which they believed was uh, reflective of a joint obligation by both the UK and the EU to really work on removing or alleviating or finessing a lot of the problems of the protocol. Um, the EU side was somewhat disappointed by that paper, but they did they did see it as a starting point, and they have now brought up their own uh, roadmap, if you like, for getting a to some kind of endpoint on the Northern Ireland Protocol, which, as they would see it, would require the UK to be fully in compliance with the protocol, because they're not yet, obviously but also a commitment to try and uh, reduce some of the more onerous aspects of the protocol, which businesses uh, find very difficult, and which, of course, unionists find offensive to their identity and, and the whole question of whether that it makes them separate from the rest of the UK. Um, the, the the Commission's roadmap, I'm told, is, a, is basically for the moment it's a list of about 27 very problematic areas, and of those there are four extremely problematic areas uh, and they will be the ones that will take the most work and and obviously may not result in Britain getting what it wants in this process. Uh, So they are um, SPS, food safety, animal health rules, which we've talked a lot about. Um, The question of tariffs on steel imports into Northern Ireland, another very technical, complicated issue. Uh, VAT on secondhand cars, not entirely sure what that's about, but perhaps we can revisit that in one of the, um, in a, the podcasts. In a, in a second hand car, podcast. In a second hand car, exactly. Once we've paid the VAT, of course. Uh, and I think the, the fourth area is uh, access to databases for, uh, for for the EU to access to UK databases. But the, the engagement is, is ongoing. I'm told it's very positive. This weekend, Marie Simonson, who is the head of the UK task force in the commission. She's taken over that position recently. She's going to be meeting her opposite number, Rebecca Ellis, and they're going to have a stakeholders meeting tomorrow, I assume by video. And then next week, there's talk of another stakeholders meeting between David Frost and Mara Shevchevich and uh, Northern Ireland businesses. Uh, I understand that Mara Shevchevich has been keen to talk to a, a much wider range of, of people in Northern Ireland who are affected by the protocol to try and widen the net of public opinion and so on. So I think the Commission and both the Commission and the British government are keen to, to follow that. Um, but I think this is going to take a long time and there are some areas, especially on uh, food safety, animal welfare and so on, where it, it's kind of baked into the European rule book uh, that member states and the Commission follow the precautionary principle so that if there's any risk at all to human health or consumer health, then you have to apply the rules strictly. So that means for the UK to look for shortcuts around food safety and animal welfare and so on, that that could be a tricky one. But anyway, what I'm told is that that, that things are 
progressing on that score. Um, another big issue that we have talked about a lot and gets a lot of coverage on social media and in the general commentary around the Northern Ireland Protocol is the effect on the question of a united Ireland. Oh yeah, and whether very topical this week. Very topical this week, yeah. We, we've had a couple of opinion polls out, um, one from the BBC Spotlight programme in Northern Ireland looking at... Uh, whether or not there would be a united Ireland within 25 years, largely because of Brexit and, and, the, ch- and the changes that that has brought about. And a another poll by the uh, European Movement Ireland, they commissioned Red Sea to carry out an opinion poll on attitudes in Ireland, in the South, to Europe in general. A lot of interesting stuff in there on the handling of the COVID pandemic, on the vaccine rollout. Um, but again, some very, very interesting figures and findings on attitudes in the South towards a united Ireland. Namely, did people believe that there would be a united Ireland in 10 years, uh, within 10 years, uh, inside the EU? And uh, I've been talking to Noelle O'Connell, who's the head of... European Movement Ireland about the poll and about the findings. Noelle O'Connell, uh, thank you very much for joining Brexit Republic. Good to have you on. Thank you, Tony. So this week you had the European Movement Ireland Red Sea poll, which is the big event uh, polling wise for you every year. I suppose we're approaching this from the Brexit perspective and one standout poll, I think, was the one standout finding was the United Ireland question. Just tell us how the question was framed, first of all, and what did we find out? Yeah, absolutely, Tony. As you said, it's it's our it's our big flagship event, and it's interesting because we have been carrying out this poll every year since since 2013. So obviously, with the health warning and the caveats that that polls are but a snapshot of opinion in time. It does enable us to look at the trends in some of the questions that we've asked every year. And more recently, in the world post-Brexit, we wanted to get a little bit under the hood of what people felt about whether they saw United Ireland in the European Union uh, over the next 10 years. And for us, and what a lot of people have commented on this particular question, is the remarkable consistency between the results of 2020 and 2021. Um, Last year, when we asked this question, 32% of people agreed that there would be a United Ireland in the EU in the next 10 years. And that remained at 32% again this year. Uh, 42% disagreed last year, with 43% disagreeing with that statement this year. And a big takeaway, I think, Tony, is the high numbers and the high level of don't knows. We had thought that the dial might have moved in, in either direction, given, of course, the greater focus, the greater scrutiny of this, four months on the end of the very torturous and difficult negotiations that you you know better than anyone in terms of reporting on for many years. But it's interesting to see that uh, the high level of don't knows, I think, means that there's still some ways to go. And uh, we certainly need to look at how we shape this inclusive conversation about what form of an island of Ireland uh, that, that we all want. I mean, a lot of the conversation politically and on social media around Brexit and the protocol suggests that the appetite for a united Ireland uh, is kind of increasing because of the way the, the the British government has handled the whole Irish peace process issue, you know, how difficult that has been. And of course, as well, because of the possibility that Scotland would vote to leave the United Kingdom, which would remove one of the real, I suppose, pillars of what the United Kingdom means. But yet, as far as your poll is concerned, certainly people in the South and the Republic don't see that as as a realistic unfolding of events over the next 10 years. I, I think, Tony opinion and perspective on that is is fairly evenly matched, isn't it? I mean, what we're seeing actually on that particular question, one of the interesting uh, comparisons on that was the demographics and the changes, I suppose, somewhat regionally on that on that particular question, but also on what the different age cohorts thought about it. If we look at the 18 to 24 
year old demographic, 51% of those actually felt that there would be a united Ireland in the European Union within 10 years. Whereas um, that, that middle group of the 45 to 54 year olds, only 20% of those closely followed by the over 65s at, at 24%. So, so very interesting. Um, and Munster, people in Munster, felt that uh, felt more strongly that there would be a united Ireland in the EU at, at 35 percent. Coincidentally, Noel, the Spotlight programme in BBC Northern Ireland released a poll around exactly the same time, showing that a majority of people on both sides of the border believed that Northern Ireland would have left the UK within 25 years, obviously a much longer time frame, and that of those in Northern Ireland, 49 percent of people uh, said if there was a border poll today, they'd vote to remain in the UK with 43% backing a united Ireland, uh, 8% undecided. And in the Republic, according to this spotlight poll, if there was a vote today, then 51% said that they would vote for united Ireland and 27 would vote for Northern Ireland to stay. So it, it, it's there's a, I suppose there's a difference between what people think will happen and what people would like to happen. Exactly, exactly, Tony. And I think you've, you've hit the nail on the head. We want to frame our question in terms of what people believe that they, they see and give that European context and dimension to it, because, of course, it's very important to, to bear in mind as well. There's over, you know, 700,000 uh, people that hold an Irish passport in the north and consider themselves um Irish and therefore European and, are, and are, are, are entitled to EU citizenship. And it's how we engage um, with those, uh, with people on the island of Ireland uh, into shaping and influencing the future European Union. I think that's something that's going to be very important and uh, an important topic for consultation and for engagement with people on the island as part of the Conference on the Future of Europe. I mean, do you think we can start to have any fixed and reliable ideas of what Brexit has and will mean for attitudes on the island of Ireland towards unity uh, and towards the link between Northern Ireland and the United Kingdom? Or do you think this is all going to be in a state of flux for a couple of years? I think it's going to be a very fluid and evolving situation for the foreseeable future. Obviously, the impacts of Brexit haven't fully washed the way through, you know, business, economy, the society on this island uh, and on the island uh, on, in Britain as well. Because arguably, with the pandemic, it's 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 very hard to dif differentiate and delineate between the two and the impacts of both. What we saw in our uh, our own polling is the reverse Brexit dividend bounce because Tony, if you remember from your reporting of it, at the 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 Brexit halcyon peak days of when Ireland was to the forefront of the negotiations and EU solidarity with supporting Ireland uh, was very much uh, very much to the fore. We saw 93% levels of support, which are unprecedented, really. Um, you know, so so from a from that heady, lofty heights of 93%, we're still at a very, very high, steady and consistent 84%. But recognizing that people still see nor that you know that there's a lot more that the EU can do and should be doing in terms of going in the right direction. Um, people viewing that just over fifty percent. So there's that little bit of a, a lot done, more to do um, uh, element. I think that we have to, to to have to look on and how that how the Brexit impacts play out over the next couple of years, particularly not only on east west relations but north south i think it's i think it's a little bit early to definitively come down on on where that's going to all play out but what it is showing is that people want to maintain strong bilateral relations and um, there has been a strain put on uh, british irish relations absolutely due to brexit and north south as well but i think nobody is under any illusions of the importance of maintaining a strong and and productive EU UK relationship, and I think Ireland has a really important role to play in that regard. 
Okay, well, it's worth keeping an eye on that. Noel O'Connell of the European Movement Ireland uh, and uh, organiser, if you like, of that uh, very interesting Red Sea poll during the week. Thanks so much for joining Brexit Republic. Thanks a million, Tony. So Noelle O'Connell there talking about the European Movement's Red Sea poll and thanks very much to her. Tony, looking ahead to the coming week, the ratification of the Trade and Cooperation Agreement. As far as Brexit is concerned, that is kind of the main meat of the week because the provisional deadline for the provisional application is up on this day week. So it's time to get it ratified before then, if ever. Yeah, that's right, Colm. We've had this question kind of hanging over the process. Um, As you know, the Brexit trade agreement concluded on Christmas Eve. Uh, It was way too late for the European Parliament to run the treaty through its various committees uh, to, um, to study and to assess the treaty. So what they did in the end was that they applied the treaty provisionally, um, pending full ratification. Now, the UK has already ratified it, but the UK did agree to a delay uh, in this ratification until the end of April. Uh, But because of the UK's move to unilaterally ease some of the requirements of the protocol, then the European Parliament said it would take its time uh, to ratify the deal. But that that has now passed. And uh, on Thursday of this week, the Conference of Presidents, which is the main uh, body that brings together all the, the leaders of the political groups in the European Parliament, they voted unanimously to put the ratification of the treaty on the agenda for next week's European Parliament nice. plenary session, which means it will get the consent vote. Um, I mean, the vote will go ahead uh, very little, if any, chance that they'll reject the treaty after COVID all this. COVID is providing <laughs> enough uncertainty for anyone this yes, weather yeah. without throwing yeah. another curveball into the mix. Yeah, so so that that's the main issue Brexit-wise next week. Also, a, it's another big letter, red letter week next week for the European Recovery Fund, uh, the COVID Recovery and Resilience Fund, which uh, will has required member states to put forward very detailed plans Uh, of how they're going to reform their economies in order to qualify for, in cases, tens of billions of euro in in support, uh, in funding from this big 750 billion euro recovery fund. Um, From an Irish point of view, it's actually not that big a deal because I think we are only going to get uh, upwards of 850 million from this fund. And that's largely because when the fund was agreed politically last year, countries like Spain and France and Italy were worst hit by the by the pandemic. And their economies have not recovered as well or have been as resilient as the Irish economy. So according to a fairly elaborate calculus by the European Commission, taking account of the you know your underlying economic um, fundamentals and the effect of the pandemic, Ireland is going to get a lot more out of the Brexit re- adjustment fund rather than the, um, the the recovery fund. So that's really what people are going to be looking at next week. Right. Well, our colleague Sean will be Sean Whelan will be back with us. That our London correspondent Sean might have something to say about David Frost's appearance in front of the European Scrutiny Committee uh, in the House of Commons as well. But we'll leave that up to him. I'm sure he'll have a packed agenda after his trips around Scotland and Wales. Well, for me, Colm O'Mungo and RT's deputy foreign editor in Dublin that's my lot for this week and for me Tony Connolly RTE's Europe editor in Brussels thanks for listening